Hello and welcome to Conversations with Criminals. My name's Matt Price and this is one of the most difficult introductions I've ever had to do. I've really been racking my brains for a while. Today's guest is called Colin Higgins and he is not and has never been a criminal. He also refuses to be called a victim of crime but the story he told me is utterly compelling and I don't know if I can really do it justice but I would say this please listen to this. Colin was on the receiving end of a crime. He was sexually abused after being groomed by two paedophiles and it wasn't just him there were 15 other boys involved. At the age of 14 after being abused for quite a long time he then went to the police and he told them about it and his two abusers were sent to jail. Now these are two guys who were very manipulative. They manipulated not just the people they were abusing, but also their families as well. And they were very intimidating. And that's when it takes a, a strange turn because there was a woman who knew what they were up to and she was trying to protect one of the boys that they were abusing and the two men murdered her. And they were boasting to Colin about murdering her. And fast forward then to when he was 28 years of age, uh, he ends up testifying and now thankfully they are behind bars. I don't know if I could actually sit down and speak to sex offenders. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. Maybe because I can't be objective or maybe I, I don't have the skill yet as an interviewer to do it. But this is an amazing conversation. It really is. I feel very privileged and I I'm sound quite sad it, it, it's a hopeful story because Colin Higgins is actually all right he's in one piece I'll tell you more about it at the end but I want you to listen to this and I hope that you find it as compelling as I do uh, this is this is Colin Higgins here's something I want to ask you and this is quite personal to go in with straight away we are we are talking about sexual abuse as a child okay when I look at you and when people look at you as a man do they ever look and think, well, hang on, you're a, re you know, you're a big, solid, confident-looking guy. How could you have been abused? How could you? How could? Can they? Do they find it hard to imagine you as a wee boy? Yeah, well, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I used to work for in a residential school for young people living with autism, and I started off working with the wee kids. And the, there's two parts. The school was broke up into two parts. You had a kind of youth kind of like four to like 16 and then you had a, a this was the junior campus then you had the kind of senior campus who was 16 to 24 year olds very violent very aggressive very strong and uh, I started off with the wee kids loved it loved it and then I had to then go down the mistook this for strength and courage my, my bulk because they say in Scotland you're quite well at yourself <laughs> I am quite well at myself <laughs> but you yeah, think they mistake this bulk for something else but really it's me been eating my feelings for 20 yeah. years yeah you know, Do you know I, what I, mean? I relate to that completely absolutely so unless i've got a full-blown active kind of fertile drug habit i'm a bit chubby <laughs> which i don't have Dutch wood. so tell me tell me how it started so, so take me back to to when it all started uh, well i was abused when i was 14 years of age I hate that term, survivor, it does my tits in, There's the survivor, um, yeah, it all started when I was 14, and um, I, we had moved, parents had separated and divorced, and 
my mother and I had found ourselves in Largs. I was there, but I was there when I was 14. Um, I didn't realise. Um, but there was obviously kids in my year who were being attacked by these two psychopaths. But I didn't know that this was going on. And we didn't know that I was being groomed in the classroom, more or less, by kids my own age. Who I don't, who I know, didn't know what they were doing. They were, they were victims themselves. Um, when they got to, they started, you know, these two guys. I just met them one night in on the promenade. I was out playing with my pals. It was winter. It was dark, and they pulled up in a car, and um, and seemed a, an odd, an odd couple. But I was a very kind of confident fourteen-year-old. I was a thirteen when I met them. I can't remember. But I was just barely into my teens anyway, and and. I was uh, confident in the front of it. Oh, that's never really changed, but quite naive and stupid inside. Very naive, a bit daft. I didn't really know what I was getting myself involved in. And uh, this this pair were, you know, basically letting us drive their car and, you know, sit and drink beer. And, you know, it was a house to go and sit in and kid on you were an adult. Was that over a certain period of time? Over months, yeah. I got, got to know them um, and they got to know me. Which is the the thing, you know? They got to know how vulnerable we were as a unit, as a family unit. Just my mum was on her own, um, and there was vulnerable members of the family around and um, things like that. So they got to know me. They knew where I was vulnerable, and knew it's all. Obviously, when you look back and you look back as an adult, and you look at what they did. You can you can see see it for what it is. But I think part of being diagnosed with PTSD anyway. The, the horrible thing about that illness is when you're going through, when you're experiencing the, the consequences of what having PTSD are, when you're going through the symptoms and experiencing it, you're not um, a 36-year-old big lumpy lad with a beard that, you know, can handle himself and deal with things and deal with people, you know. Um, it's just... One of those things that's uh, happens to you, and you're just you're you're just destined to live with it for the rest of your life, you know. And there's just but yeah, people do. I think it takes them, how I look takes them aback when you hear that I was a wee victim of something horrendous, you know. But I, I also want to look at the other side of it as well. There's a misconception that perhaps, or maybe it's not a misconception that paedophiles all look and sound the same way. That it's mm. just guys in long max. But you're talking about guys who clearly had some kind of game plan oh God, who yeah. were probably charming I'm mm. guessing I'm not putting words in your yeah, mouth yeah you're right they were very charming very funny quick. well I'd say charismatic is probably the right word okay. charming I don't think charm was I suppose they were charming uh, but very charismatic very friendly uh, I think I think charm I think people were quite eloquent you know <laughs> they, weren't, they, weren't, they, they weren't eloquent but they were um they were charming and had a lot of backstories. I mean, Charles O'Neill, um, he was the the older, the kind of brains of the two of the outfit. I mean, he was a professional boxer okay. in Australia. That's how he earned his money. Wow. Yeah, he was a professional semi-featherweight boxer. So these were not your atypical wee kind of dirty wee men who were, you know, or they were dirty wee men, but they were dirty wee men who were dangerous. Yes. Yeah. So they weren't like the craze, really, you know. Well, can I just say at this point, though, everything you've described, and I'm trying to sort of look at myself now as a 14-year-old, 
drawn to boxing all my life. Absolutely love it. If mm. someone said, "Hey, you can come and hang out with us," you know, mm. and, you, and you're treated like an adult, you know, and even though you know you're not one, mm -hmm. and you've only got your 14 year old brain in which to process it, I would have thought, "Wow, this is cool. These guys are really cool." Mm -hmm. Plus, they rented this little cottage on a farm um, at the back of Skilmerley, just outside Largs. Be white picket fence. I mean, <laughs> sounds so stupid looking back and kind of creepy, almost bizarre. But it was like a Freddy Krueger dream sequence without the scary bit, you know, it was weird. Very, very weird. And because Anil had done so much time in jail, he'd become quite the cook. You know, they taught him how to cook. Okay. So he'd be cooking these meals, you know, and like um, very sophisticated soups and all of that. And then you were getting a can of tenants to drive a wee shot at the car or a wee, you know, and they were, okay, they were a bit wild and dangerous. But they weren't, they weren't, I didn't think for one second that I was being attacked, I was being set up and groomed and I was going to be attacked the way I was, you know, I didn't obviously know that that was what was going to happen. And because there was a lot of drinking and a lot of getting too drunk and passing out, we don't know how long uh, the abuse had started because I did think they'd been drugging my drink. So, so yeah, we'll never really know uh, when it all began. Was it, now was it you, were there other kids involved? Oh, there was about 15 other, I'm always quite reticent to talk about it too much because, I mean, I haven't, I haven't agreed to speak to every single person about it, I, I don't, because it's like, um, when you're bringing it up, obviously there was a woman murdered by this pair yes. as well, and uh, as the story thickens, um, but the... Obviously, I'm, 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 I'm always thinking of her because I mean, I'll be soon. I'll be the same age she was when they killed her, which is weird. I hadn't anticipated I would be thinking about it that way. It's just another thing that that comes up, of course, because you don't, you can't anticipate where you're going to go psychologically or whatever. So that's why therapy is so important, not just for dealing with what you're dealing with, but for the strategies you get for dealing with stuff that you haven't considered. Tell me about the woman they killed, if that's okay. Sure, and yeah. When, and, and how, and when, and why? Well, it's like, talking about it again, you're reticent to do it because she's got a family. Sure. Uh, she had four or five kids who are now, I presume, all having babies of their own and living their own lives and stuff. And she, she must, she's constantly an empty chair at every event and table that they must have. And I just, I'm very much aware of that. But I'm also aware of the fact that these two are in the news fairly regularly for one thing or another. So it's like we should, we should maybe put out some positive stuff and speak about Alison in that context that she was a victim that seems to be... She's kind of forgotten about um, a lot of the time. Or she, they, they murdered a woman, but they murdered this woman. And I don't know, they murdered her before I met her. So I don't... Before I met them, I haven't got to meet Alison. Uh, but they told me they'd killed her. And I think she was somebody that they met through in Rossi when they were living in Rossi. And she was, I don't know, she was a friend of the pair or what was going on. But I mean, she became aware of what they were all about. Right, okay. So I think she tried to intervene in her own way uh, to get them to behave, to stop or whatever. Um, and they just took her out, you know, they just got her in the house and. It's all down to well, so a lot of it's conjecture, but they, I think she had quite a violent end, um, and they reckon that her her body was 
stashed overnight under rocks down by the kind of sewage pipe you see leaving the front of Large Beach to into the water. They reckon they, they stashed her along the beach somewhere and they are then put her into some sort of container and uh, took her out to sea in a boat from either Rimberkip or Large Marina or whatever they got a boat and they took her out to sea and she was dumped out there and she's never been found since. So, the Arlene Fraser case, I don't know if you remember that case where they couldn't quite get the husband because of no body. And when they got him for her murder, without there being a, a body present, then we proceeded to go after them for the murder of Alison McGargle. So, but that's been like, for these been all been different court cases. I think there's been, God, since 1998, there's been about four or five of them. Right, okay. And I've been pre-cognosed uh, pre pre for. I think three of them. Sure. So it's like I think the last one I had to deal with was Alison's murder inquiry when I was twenty-eight or something. Right. Okay. So. Did you say that these two guys told you that they? Oh, they told me. They told a few people. How how, how did they do that? I mean, how, on how what, what what did they say? Well, I mean, but this obviously I need to be very careful because um, of. There've been other victims in their uh, anonymity clauses and well, what okay. have you. So I need to be were, careful. Were they, were they boasting? Yeah. Basically, they were boasting that they had, they had basically, well, there was no mystery that a woman had gone missing from the area. Her posters were on every lamppost, in every library, post office, police station, doctor surgery, in the town. I couldn't move 12 pages without seeing a poster for Alison McGarrigal. They were everywhere. And um, so when he alluded to the fact that he had done what he'd done, all they told me was that they'd done her in took her out because she was a grass and he always gets even with a grass, you know, he's going to grass him, empty grasses me, they're, you know, they're fucked, you know, was what he would say and uh, she was feeding the, feeding the fishies and he would say that regularly. Sure. Uh, but of course at this point he's letting me know, you know, I know what your mum's movements are, I know where she goes, so it's all done at the same sort of time, all done, I don't even think he even realises he's Doing it, do you know? I think he, I think he's operating from some part of his brain that is total um, reptilian. You know, it's sure. like whew, I don't even think he's that. I think we give him too much credit that this is all so carefully constructed. But something he just naturally seemed to do, you know. And he was a master at manipulation and a master at putting a feeds up, putting fear into you, and an absolute master. The pair of them were. And uh, how long did the fear last for? Oh God, I often have a hard time admitting it because you ever think they fucking arseholes are going to be sitting listening to what I'm saying? But a long time. It was having to go into therapy for twenty months of P of a EMDR therapy, which is like military grade. Bully you better, you know. It's like you work on what's your, your, your biggest fear that you live with, you know, and then you have to verbalise it, and then you have to go through these flashing lights and pulsing sounds, and that's like very Victorian, almost. It's to mimic kind of REM sleep. Right. And uh, basically, it gets you over it, you then mark out a 10, but your therapist's right in your face, you know, it's really intense. I had the best therapist on the planet, TG, I talk about, I've not to say her real name, but she was she was amazing, but I was still fearful because when you're dealing with the fear, you're not dealing with the fear 
as a 36 year old you're dealing with that fear as a child sure but you're, a, you're an ad fuck it's a head fucking a half you ever seen that meme on Facebook where the guy's laughing the head's laughing and inside the skull there's like a wee boy holding his knees oh uh, yeah, yeah that hurt me like an absolute train when I saw it because I thought that is so what it's like but the thing is though these guys are now in jail because because of you because of something that you did which is an amazing thing well I suppose I try and take some comfort in that um, that taught me through that and basically I just felt I had to take control of the situation that threatened my mum quite specifically how old were you I would be 14 okay and she, they said um, <coughs> they were going to gouge her eyes out with a fork and all that and they'd been stalking around about Morrison's or whatever it was then did your mum know what was happening to you no she didn't know but she knew she'd been followed that day she knew all about it she knew because uh, she told me about it weird thing the day these two guys you know she just was talking not having a clue what was going through to me going through with, with me her son and I thought nah I says I need to um, I need to deal with these people and the only way that I can keep her safe indefinitely for the next few years anyway is I, they go behind bars and, and I knew what they'd done was so wrong I knew what they'd done was pure bad like you know I was under no illusions as to what was going on and I just thought holy shit you know when it dawns on you what's happening to you you know um, but I just went up to Mance and, uh, and my macaroni cheese pie two macaroni cheese pies I bought and I went in and I went, pie sat down and uh, we microwaved the pies and I just started to tell her that you know it had been happening to the boys in my year and she said you try to tell me it's happening to these boys and it's not happening to you and I said no it's happening to me too and she burst out crying phone calls police social workers the place went like a fair and that was it I never had to deal with them again but how were the how were the police with you? Because that that, that is a brave thing to do. I, I can only describe it as brave, and I really mean that because it must have been very confusing, very, very confusing. But I think I was an autopilot, to be honest. I just knew what I had to do, and I just got on with it. Did you know? did the police believe you? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was obviously the emotional reaction to getting something like that off your shoulders, and have made the decision, and you're now in that you're on that track now. That there's no you can't change it now. That's it done was a kind of a, a relief. I didn't tell him anything about Alison at this point. I just mentioned what had happened to me. That was bad enough, you know. Okay. So, but I do, I do recall, the social worker I had was great. Again, I don't want to say her name, but she was no. awesome. Um, she'd been, she was a mature student who then became, who got to the job, I'd say, her, maybe in her 40, late 30s, early 40s. And, had, and was dealing with me as a truancy case. Had no idea. And then this blew off and she was like, holy fuck and I remember she used to drive an old Volvo she used to call it Vera the Volvo this thing was fuck she used to smoke Ber um, Berkeley Blue cigarettes she used to try to get a draw out of them you know because they were so weak and just remember we were sitting there and then I brought up Alison McGarrigal and the two coppers and Peter Benson John Salins I'll never forget them just looked at each other and just couldn't believe what I was saying couldn't believe it, did believe it, took it very seriously and confirmed a lot of the stuff that Anil had told me about his other crimes he'd committed that were violent over in Australia. One where a guy done time, done a bank robbery in Australia and then did some time for it and uh, there was a guy, a police, uh, a turnkey in there 
Oh, a, the screw is Charlie would always refer to this screw and assure you. And he said to him, I'll get you. And Neil said to this guy, I'll get you. And and came just the paths crossed in a pub and I show you one night and he took him outside and he absolutely annihilated him and wow. paralysed him, paralysed the guy and blinded him. Now he told me about this and I just thought it was maybe, it was hard to, to work out what was real and what was fake. I knew what they were saying wasn't empty, I knew they were very capable of what they were saying, but a lot of it I did think was just, I didn't believe them. Sure. What they were saying was real. Because yeah. the police confirmed that that was true. They could see that from the international site or system that they were connected to, they could see that, that was accurate. And then when I brought up uh, the thing about um, Alison Garrigal, they couldn't believe it. And then that was it, that was it. Another be another best part of two decades of, of what if and what's gonna happen. Um then so talk me through those two decades, was it did you did you have to go to court? Did you have to go and testify mm-hmm. in court? And I only had to give evidence to the ones though because and that was the last time. Okay. Because they would crumble every case and go uh, guilty. Right, okay. You know. Were you not cross-examined at all by... Because presumably they would have had some kind of... Somebody to defend them. They had um, they had the king shite of the Scottish legal system. Oh, I forget his name. How could I forget his name? Absolute arsehole, a man. Big moustache. Did he... Did he Famous lawyer. Ask you questions. No, because what happened was, um, the one of the victims, I think the boy she'd been trying, Alison had been trying to protect. Actually, gave evidence. He was the first boy to give evidence, and after he did, uh, if memory serves, everybody just absolutely collapsed. They just knew that they didn't have a leg to stand on, and then they voted. They they pleaded guilty, and that's kind of how it went. But they weren't going to plead guilty for the Alison McGarrigal thing because there was no body. So they weren't going to plead guilty to that. So we all had to give evidence in that case. But that was Dorothy Bain who was going out. She was the one who was prosecuting them. She's the head, or she was, one of the most senior people in the, the industry. You know, Dorothy Bain, and she was excellent. I mean, I was in a psychiatric hospital when I had to go and give evidence in that uh, because that, that one just sent me around to twist. How old were you then? I'd be 28 or something like that. Okay. 28, 29. Um, and I had to go in to give evidence from hospital. Full of Valium and God knows what else. So the people in the court system then, obviously, it's because it's a big deal for anybody to go to court anyway. But in such a case, in a case such as this, where there could be huge consequences, mm-hmm. do they speak to you beforehand to tell you, listen, you know, we want this to go well for you? I'm talking about courtroom dramas on the telly now. Is it like that? Well, the first courtroom I walked into, I fainted. It was Kilmarnock, and that was when I went in. I was taken in by the Procurator Fiscal just to show me what was going to happen and what the court looked like. I expected the court to be like an old court full of wood and all, you know, but it's not like that. It's like the bloody well can you know, the, the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, that's what it looks like. Yeah. It's all slick. Um, and we smell of wood, varnished wood and weird lighting arrangement. And as I'm walking in the side door of the court, the it was a ramp, everyone's obviously disabled access and stuff, but the, the carpeted ramp was coming up, meeting my feet quicker and quicker and quicker as I'm walking up. And I just fainted, you know, just with the room. I'll never forget it, just the bristly carpet hitting my head and then I could suss out you said you're going to be sat over there pointing to the kind of facing 
the judges position left, that's where you're going to be and you'll need to point, you'll be asked to point these people out in court, so I can't show you where they'll be sitting, but it's blatantly obvious where they're going to be sitting and that was that, they take you through questions, the property of fiscal take you through your statement and um, you've got to go through your statement again, maybe a couple of times it's hard going I mean, there's a, obviously there's enduring what you deal with as a victim of a crime like that for some people it goes on for years and years and years and it's a member of their immediate family you know, I don't know how people who suffered that kind of abuse that to me is horrendous you know, nobody in my family did that to me this wasn't somebody from my immediate circle that's attacked me this was people, these were two psychopaths from out with our world came into our world and caused destruction for people who live with it's been an uncle or an aunt or a parent or a sibling or something I just I think that must be another another level of of heartache I think was there any possibility that they could have been found not guilty did that did that enter your head at all it wasn't they could get off on some kind of technicality or something was that a fear nah there was too many too many people cooperating what I was saying I had no I had no fear but I couldn't remember, the judge at the time was a guy called Lord Isi, who I think there's been a few situations he's been incredibly lenient towards people who have committed these crimes. I'm quite a suspect individual. Um, and he was very critical of the parents of the the boys, you know, um, that were victims. And I thought, so when is it ever okay to abuse a child, Your Honour? How can you use... You know, and my mum, who was the most overprotective parent on the planet, by the way. Yeah. You know, and it's like all of a sudden she went. You know, she was so overprotective of me and my sister. This still happened. You know, if it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Um, but yeah. When the news comes out of all this, because th- this has happened over a number of years, but when you suddenly made your decision, right, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell the police. How? What was the reaction like at school and from your peers and friends? Well, I, I never went back to that school after that um, ever hap- after that happened. After that happened, I was put into like sort of CID protective kind of care, um, and then was allowed back out to then go home to phone them from my mum's house with surrounded by police and social workers and all this army of people. My mum, I then had to phone them. And kid on, I had measles, and that's why I hadn't been round or hadn't been accessible to keep it all, to keep them off the scent before the police could fly in and arrest them. And their wee cottage with a picket fence. Protective CID. It was a CID kind of protective sort of, um, I was putting some sort of police sort of care house with a family. All right. Okay. Uh, and. Um, I don't know. He was the the dad was he was he was military, and that was what that was what they did. They had this arrangement where they would take in troubled kids from very different kind of backgrounds. But yeah, I was put in a sort of kind of care, right, for a wee while, and then I was sent to live with my sister <laughs> for a few weeks. Um, laugh at that now because that I don't know where I was better off to be honest. Um, but yeah, but the one I'm going to write a book one day about it all. Caught, yeah, yeah, put fascinating it, book. Put, put it all down. I just don't have the the did the story with Marion Scott and and Sunday Post. I mean, that was that was that was a wee 
just testing the water of how it was going to be speaking about it publicly but I felt I had to take control of it because it's something that's going to come up um, and to not discuss it maybe makes it I'm ashamed or it's some sort of dirty wee secret or whatever but uh, I, I just it was a hard one I thought the best thing you can do is uh, take control and speak about it and I don't really want to be a, past, a poster boy for sexual abuse you know and it's like people will come up to you and they will and it happens to me regularly and you know obviously when a young person comes up to you and says they are being abused it's a completely different box of frogs from somebody coming up to you in their 50s and saying I was abused because yeah. um, I mean the, that person needs an ear if a child approaches you with, with a, a claim like that that needs action you know to resolve a different kettle of fish but a, a lot of older people are now confiding in me and I'm the first person they've ever told Yeah. so you've got to then say the best thing you can say and let them know that that's great that they can talk about it and but it's really it's it's exhausting you know <laughs> it's really it's exhausting well it will be but then you know you listen you got a, a good a good demeanor about you anyway if this hadn't happened you you just got that i, th- I think you got a kind looking face oh thanks very it, much it's, it's, it's your own fault i just <laughs> I, I just think people would sort of think oh he seems like he's a nice guy oh, i can speak to him and I, you know I, I mean i'm making assumptions here but i suspect mm. that if this awful thing hadn't happened, you're probably the kind of guy that people would think, oh, he's a good lad, I can speak to him. Oh, well, that's a nice thing to say. No, and I really mean that as well. <laughs> I, mean, I don't mean to say people don't speak to me if you've been a piss. I don't mean that. It's no, just of that course It can not. be very, very, very... People automatically think I want to go into some kind of role of like working within... like, like men mentoring people that have been through I don't think I could deal with that every day. I just couldn't deal with that sure. as regularly. When you've got a lot of those nightmares that are real in your head, how how long are they in jail for? They were in, I think, was it, I can't remember. Have they, have they got like, they're in for life? Like I don't think they're getting out now. Right. But the British justice system, being as it is, um, life doesn't mean life, thank God. I, I, I agree that it shouldn't um, in a lot of cases. Uh, but there are some people who just should not be allowed on the street. And, you know, these are, re- they are repeat offenders um, that I think are connected around oh god knows what they've what connections they've had in the past um i think any judge releasing them i think they got i think they got like basically in 2000 and i don't know 13 14 whatever it was i think they got life sentences then but those are not fixed terms if if memory serves i can't remember but i think they need to have a, a a real panel of people look at their case history and what they've done how they've behaved inside and then release them that way I don't think they'll have an automatic right to release and if they do they're going to be old men but I don't think any less dangerous is that is that I hate to ask this but I'm going to I mean is is that a fear that they can come out and hurt people again oh oh, absolutely because I've had that's that's a reality that I've had to live through you know because um, when they get out the first time round, uh, my mental health was in the trash. I mean, it was so bad. And then they were over in Spain, living. They moved to Spain. They they bought a bus and turned it into a, a like a living bus with bedrooms and all that. Oh, gives me the absolute, absolute. I go green around the gills even thinking about it. But they had this bus with bedrooms and all that. They kitted this bus out in some sort of morbid, bloody Top Gear, bloody travel log, 
buggered off to the continent and they were living um, my mum had moved to the southeast of Spain and they were living not 40 minutes drive from where my mother was living and neither two had any clue but they could have walked past each other in a market or anything very odd and they ran a company out there called Rainbow Cleaning Services where they were cleaning apartments that uh, their families were there holidaying with their children and it's just beyond you know your imagination really when you think about it and a wee boy went missing out near there called Jeremy Vergas and they've still not I don't know but I mean honest to god when the front page of the Sunday Mail their faces wee boy missing six and I knew I tell you they're not leaving witnesses this time this is how they know that for them to be able to indulge um, with their their inclinations that they have uh, they have to then start you know, taking the lives of, of victims of, you know, their depraved notions. And I nearly had a bad turn. But m- although my actions, this was not my fault, but my actions set off that chain of events that landed them there to that wee boy. And I felt like, was, I felt like I'd killed this kid. I felt it was a wow. terrible, terrible thing. So, I don't know, they were also, um, uh, they were also considered very seriously and the abduction of Madeleine McCann. They thought that they were um, taking, uh, working to order for other people with other paedophiles with different MOs. And, you know, yeah. so they were procur- procuring wee girls for, and vice versa. Or whatever, you know, and, and there the McCanns sitting on Oprah Winfrey show talking about these um, suspects who are in Scotland who are Scottish paedophiles. But Charlie, they're bringing them from Paisley, uh, originally, but Anil, he emigrated to Australia, was out there for a long time, became a boxer, bank robber, probably an act of nonce out there as well, um, came back and then started their campaign here and then murdered Alison, then I met them and then they went to jail. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the end. <laughs> and then they get out, and then they started. Then they abducted a lad in uh, Spain again when they were out there. Had him locked up in that bloody bus. Wouldn't let him out. And then they moved down to Blackpool. Didn't realise that they had, you know, some of uh, Police Scotland's best on the tracks the whole time. Now we down to um, Blackpool where they befriended some other vulnerable women and they present themselves as a couple who had been through a real hard time and she was going to actually be a uh, surrogate and, and actually give them, have a child and give it, give them a child um, so, but the police we were able to step in with the evidence that we had to get them put away before they'd be able to cause too much more damage and uh, hopefully like they, they'll not get out because to me they, they should never be allowed to walk the streets they're just dangerous it's as simple as that thank you very much for listening and thank you for all the support and for sharing the podcast and for the great comments that you've been leaving on iTunes it's very much appreciated and of course thank you very much to Colin Higgins as well I'm going to leave some links in the notes if you want to find out more about Colin he is he runs a comedy club a comedy night in Glasgow And he's planning on taking a show up to the Edinburgh Festival as well to talk about his experiences. So thanks, Colin. Thank you very much. Good luck. I'll see you out there. Thanks again for everyone for listening. And I shall speak to you soon.